Bibles to James chapter 5. We are concluding our study of the one another's of the New Testament. By the way, people are wondering, Bob, what are you going to do for your last series? What else? We are going to be going through Galatians again this fall, and I can hardly wait for that to start. But this morning, we're going to conclude the way many New Testament letters conclude, and that is with an emphasis on prayer. James, like most of the letters of the New Testament, ends on a note or emphasis on prayer. But James is unique among the letters of the New Testament in that he is the only one who specifically dictates by the power of the Spirit that we are to pray for one another. Not just pray for ourselves, not just pray for the kingdom, but we are actually to pray for one another. I'll never forget uh, the first time I was involved in a meeting where we prayed for one another. I was a brand new Christian. I was mainly only three or four weeks old in the Lord. Y'all need to remember, I didn't grow up in a church background. I didn't know Christ until I was 20. And about 50 students met at a fraternity house that had been actually rented by a campus ministry, uh, apparently the fraternity had lost its charter. Uh, shocker, right? That doesn't happen very often. And, uh, and the, the, the campus ministry rented the house for a couple years. It was only about, oh, a stone's throw away from my fraternity house. And, and about 50 of us, staff and students, met at this house for a night of prayer. It was the first time I'd ever been exposed to the whole idea. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, one person stood up and gave a devotional on prayer, and then another person stood up, and she set the stage for what we were going to be praying about. And then we broke up, much like we did during the adult discipleship hour this morning. We broke up into small groups of about five, and I was floored. It's the first time I'd ever heard people praying out loud. It's the first time I'd, I'd ever heard passion in prayer. The only prayer I'd ever heard was the Lord's Prayer. The only prayer I'd ever uttered was the Lord's Prayer, and I didn't really know what it meant. I just recited it. And these people were pouring out prayer from the depth of their souls. And I felt awkward. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know what I was supposed to say. I'd never prayed out loud. I began to be self-conscious. What if I pray at the same time somebody else's pray? How do you do the yield thing when it comes to prayer out loud? But by being with that group, I learned how to pray by hearing them pray. And eventually I felt comfortable enough and I began to pray out loud as well. James is impassioned about prayer. As a matter of fact, James, who as you know is the half-brother of Jesus, 
same mother as Jesus, Mary, but, but James was the child of Joseph and Mary, and Jesus, of course, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. But you know James' nickname, besides being the Lord's brother? Camel knees. Why? Because James, according to tradition, spent so much time on his knees in prayer that he developed calluses on his knees. And they looked like camel's knees as a result. James is passionate about prayer. And James in particular is passionate about the church learning how to pray for one another. Not just praying for one another when we're not together and we're on our own, but specifically praying for one another as a congregation, in the congregation, in small groups. We'll be starting life groups next week. If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. One of the things we do is pray together. And if you don't know how to pray, you learn to pray by hearing people pray. James is so passionate about prayer that in these six verses of James 5, 13 to 18, he uses the word prayer seven times. He can't say it enough. Pray, 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 pray. He uses three different words for prayer. And then he uses prayer as a noun and he uses prayer as a verb. He can't talk about prayer enough. And as we study this passage together this morning, we're going to receive from James some guidelines on how to pray for one another. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. <clears throat> Follow along as I read James 5, verses 13 to 18. This is God's Word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's Word. He gave it to us because He loves us. He wants us to spend time in intimate communication with Him. And He wants us to love one another by learning how to pray for one another. So let's pray for one another together right now. Father, we don't maybe know the names of the people in front of us, the people behind us, the people on our left, the people on our right, and yet right now we can pray for one another. We can pray that those around us have their hearts stirred by your word. 
that those around us find hope and help in the promises of prayer. That those around us fall more in love with Jesus. And God, we're thrilled to think that right now, people around us are praying for us as we pray for one another. And then, Jesus, you're praying for us right now. Holy Spirit, you're interceding for us right now. And so lead us now to learn more and to pray more effectively. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So as uh, Dax said during the congregational prayer, uh, this morning kicks off our week of prayer, coming at a very timely uh, opportunity with uh, Caleb and his family coming here next week and uh, needing to have the congregational vote on the 27th. You need to know that we're having a theme verse to this week of prayer. It's Romans 8, 26 that gives us great encouragement. We do not know how to pray as we ought to, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And it says that the Spirit translates. He groans through for us with, with groaning too deep for words. In other words, He takes our prayers and He translates them to the Father's throne. We might, only ex- we might only experience it as a groaning in the soul, but the Spirit is speaking clearly what the burden of our hearts are for ourselves, for the kingdom, and for one another into the very throne room of God. But the other reason why we're choosing Romans 8.26 for the theme verse is as a memory tool to help us pray at certain times. Romans 8.26, at 8.26 a.m., we want to pray for the kingdom, for the church, for ourselves, and for one another. 8.26 a.m., 8.26 p.m. Set reminders so that all of us at Oak Mountain will be praying together at the very least at 8.26 a.m. and 8.26 p.m. You know, the, the, the first century church, actually the Old Testament church as well, had specific hours of prayer. 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. Matter of fact, uh, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They were going up when other people were praying, and they were going to pray together. So we're going to practice two hours of prayer, not for the whole hour, but on the hour at 8.26 a.m., 8.26 p.m. And you need to realize that James isn't just calling us to pray for one another separately. He's calling us to pray for one another together. Again, small group prayer. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you sick? It's presumed in the middle of there. Is anyone among you cheerful? That among you stresses the corporate nature of small group prayer. You'll learn how to pray And also, when we have a group, we lean on each other's faith as we pray. And we're going to learn more about that. So, three guidelines on how to pray for one another. First of all, pray for one another with familiarity. This whole passage, James 5, 13 to 18, 
I said, James mentions prayer over and over and over again. You know what he mentions just as much as prayer? The need for transparency among the people of God. The need for vulnerability. The need for authenticity. One of our values that I know Caleb will continue to build upon when he comes is relational authenticity. Why is that so important? Why is it all throughout this passage? Because how are people supposed to pray for one another if they don't know what's going on in one another's lives? The only way we can pray for one another, the only way you can benefit from the prayers of the saints is if they know what's going on in your life. If you're not transparent about your life, then how is anybody going to pray for you? And all through this passage, we see transparency. We see vulnerability. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. But remember, the central verse of the passage is verse 16. Pray for one another. Yes, if you're suffering, you want to pray, but you also want to be transparent with others so that they can pray for you as well. Now, that word suffering does not mean physical suffering. We'll get to that in a second. The word suffering in verse 13 means hardship. It means distress. It's almost any kind of prayer request you might have through hardship that doesn't involve physical illness. Troubled marriage. Difficulty with parenting. Dealing with the loneliness of singleness. Financial struggles. Work issues. Finding work, as well as troubled work associates. Anything related to stress and brokenness in this life that isn't related to physical suffering, that's what James is talking about. And we need to be transparent with one another. Because how can people pray for us if they don't know what's going on with us? We need to create a culture of familiarity. Now, you're not going to stand up in front of 800 people here this morning and say, hey, this is my need. I mean, we could do that, but that'd take a lot of courage, more than most of us have. But we can meet in life groups. We can meet in discipleship groups. We can meet in adult discipleship classes. And in those safe contexts, we can be transparent. We have to be transparent if we want to take advantage of this opportunity to be prayed for. Again, second part of verse 13, if, if anyone is cheerful, is anyone cheerful? Sing praise. Now, it doesn't say anyone among you, but it's assumed because it's sandwiched before and behind by is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you sick? Is anyone, understood, among you cheerful? But again, verse 16 says, pray for one another. Don't just rejoice yourself. What else are we supposed to do? Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to be vulnerable or transparent or honest when things are going great. We're not just supposed to share prayer or our familiar circumstances with each other when things are, are struggling and difficult and tough. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, because... 
it might encourage someone else's faith to hear how God is working in our lives in such a kind way. Don't, don't worry that, that it's going to be gloating. Instead, realize that when God's at work in you in a way that you enjoy, other people are going to get joy out of that as well. But let me tell you another reason why we need to be transparent in prosperity when times are good. Honestly, because you're never more in danger of forgetting God than when things are good. When we're going through hardship, we don't tend to forget God. We tend to be desperate for Him. When we're in distress, we tend to be people who pray and invite others into our lives to pray for us. But when we experience prosperity, that's when people forget God. In Deuteronomy, God even says it's going to happen. He says, when you get into the promised land and things are going great and your crops are coming in, the cattle are bearing calves, watch out that you don't forget me and think it is by my power, my might, and my wisdom that all these things have happened to me. Now, see, that's when we're in danger. And so when we're experiencing prosperity, we need to share it. We need to share it because we're in danger. And we need people to pray for us. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Call upon other people to pray. Anyone cheerful? Let him pray. Call upon other people to pray. Now, he does say in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Now he is talking about physical illness for the first time. But notice what he says. If you're sick, you need to be honest. If you're sick, you need to be transparent. If you're sick, you need to be vulnerable. If you're sick, you need to be authentic because the elders aren't supposed to come to you when you're sick and say, hey, James 5 says that we can anoint you with oil and God promises to work through that. No, it doesn't say that. It says the person who is sick is to call upon the elders. You know, there are times when, when someone comes to me and says, hey, I think so-and-so, we need to have the elders pray for them. And, and I've never said no, right? But part of me is thinking, ah, I'm not supposed to go to them with this suggestion. The Bible's pretty clear. They're supposed to come to us. Now, is there a dynamic there of dependence? Is there a dynamic there of the Spirit working? Folks, I I think yes. And so once again, James is presenting a culture where we're called to vulnerability. We're called to transparency. We're called to make our needs known. You know, in God's church, we can't be resentful of a church that doesn't know our needs if we're not sharing our needs. It's on you, folks. Now, we have a structure where it is so easy for people to share. If you're a member of this church, you have an under-shepherd, you have a woman-shepherd, you have an elder, you have a staff person. All you got to do is run a flag up the pole. 
And we are ready to minister to you and pray for you. But we can't pray for that which we are unfamiliar with. The scriptures are filled with vulnerability. Even verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What's that mean? He said, Elijah was a knucklehead too. That's what James is saying. A nature like ours. You know, we think of Elijah as the one on Mount Carmel who called down fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and all the prophets of Baal. And yes, he did that. And in the very next chapter, he wants God to kill him. The king of Israel, Ahab, and his wicked wife, Jezebel, have put a contract out on Elijah's life, and he falls to pieces. Now, I would too, <laughs> okay? But, but James's point is, Elijah, he was broken too. He was sinful too. If the Bible can be vulnerable about the Bible characters... James is saying that we need to be vulnerable as the characters in God's story right now. Are you willing to open your life up for the purpose of being prayed for? Who doesn't want to be prayed for? But people can't pray unless they know. Pray for one another with familiarity. Secondly, pray for one another with faith. <clears throat> I know what you're thinking. Oh, here we go. It's all up to me. I got to believe. Things aren't going to happen unless I believe. Okay, you know what's interesting about this text? The person being prayed for is never asked to exercise faith here. Now, I'm not saying we're not supposed to, right? All I'm saying is in this passage, the person being prayed for is never asked to be the one to show faith. Those who are doing the praying are to bear the burden of praying in faith. The prayer of faith, James is writing about the elders. When the person who's sick is vulnerable and calls upon the elders, it's not the person who is sick who is encouraged to exercise faith. It's the elders who are told that the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. Well now, okay, all we did was shift the burden. The elders are like, oh no, it's all up to me. No, it says that the elders in verse 14 pray in the name of the Lord. That's the prayer of faith. In other words, you're not putting faith in your faith. You're not putting faith in yourselves or your own righteousness or your own deservedness or your own gift of intercession. No, you're putting your faith, you're praying in the name of the Lord. You're putting your, name, your faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, His finished work on your behalf, that He purchased our salvation. He purchased a right standing with God, and He purchased by His life and obedient death on the cross, every answer to prayer we're ever going to receive. That's why the author of the Hebrews says, every promise is yes and amen in Christ. So really, the more pure 
are resting in Jesus, the more we offer the prayer of faith. And elders are called to do that, but then James universalizes what he calls the elders to, and in verse 16 he reminds us, pray for one another. Pray for one another in faith, in the name of the Lord, resting in the finished work of Christ. In other words, it's not the pray e that has to conjure up faith, but neither is it the prayer. But it is similar, or, or it's a picture of like what the four friends who had the paralytic buddy, what they did when they wanted to bring him to Jesus. The paralytic couldn't do a thing. He was paralyzed. He couldn't run to Jesus. He couldn't get to Jesus. He couldn't place himself before Jesus. So the four friends cut a hole in the roof and lowered him into Christ's presence. That's what it means to pray for one another in faith. We bring our helpless brother, our helpless sister, who can't seem to get before Jesus, and we, by our intercession, lower them into the very presence of Jesus. And the prayer in faith will make the sick person well. By the way, don't spiritualize that and, and say, well, yeah, it'll make them well in heaven. Now, now, we can't demand of God things, but James isn't talking about in heaven. He's talking about the here and now. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well in the here and now. Are we going to believe those promises? And can I just tell you how much I wrestle with this? I'm, I'm just being completely honest. There have been times where I thought, well, God, your word says this. I mean, what's, what's, it, what's it say in, in Mark 11, 24? Whatever you ask in prayer, believe you received, and it will be yours. <laughs> can I just be real for a second? That, to me, is the most frustrating verse in all of the Bible. There are times I've been absolutely convinced. I've believed. It hasn't happened. Now, folks, I don't know what to do with that, but here's what I do know. Don't rip it out of your Bible. It's still there. Jesus spoke those words. This is God's inerrant, infallible word. We're to believe it, even when sometimes it makes no sense. There's all kinds of promises in this passage. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In other words, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its effects. That's a promise. We're to claim that by faith. Now, how do I know I'm righteous? Because Jesus purchased my righteousness. James is not saying if you've really lived well today, you can pray for one another and really expect answers. No. James is saying if you're resting in your right standing before God based on the finished work of Christ, His obedient life, His substitutionary death, then the prayer you utter as a person declared righteous before God will be great and powerful in its effects. 
In other words, James is saying that his brother, Jesus, that James himself in Christ has as much of an audience before God the Father as Jesus does. Do you believe that? Do you believe, because of the work of Christ, that God is as willing to answer your prayer as he is to answer the prayer of Jesus? Jesus is the eternal son, but through the finished work of Christ, you're an adopted son or an adopted daughter. And just as it says in John 17, 23, that Jesus prays that we might know that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus, James here is saying that we might know that he hears us as much as he does Jesus. We're called to pray in faith. We're called to pray with familiarity. And then thirdly and finally, we're called to pray with fervency. This is right in the text. Look at verse 17. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three and a half years it did not rain. You see, James is telling us our prayers have powerful effects. We can see the hand of God released in this world through our prayers. Now, the word fervently is, is a sort of turn of speech in the Greek. Literally, what James writes is, he prayed with a prayer. That's how the English translate uh, to, he prayed fervently. He prayed with a prayer. You ever heard somebody's like, ooh, that dude's praying. Or sister, that was a prayer. That's what James is saying. He prayed with a prayer. You can just see one of our beautiful African-American pastors going to town on this verse. He prayed a prayer, people. That's what we're called to, praying a prayer with fervency, with emotion, with intensity, with zeal, with enthusiasm. You know, God's not a brain on a stick. We're, we're not just supposed to sort of like logic. Oh, God, I like a computer. Oh, God, I pray that you would bless this person. No. There should be some passion in our praying. Now, we don't need to give in to emotionalism, right? But trust me, there are a lot of us that could stand to be a bit more emotional, a bit more emotionally invested in our praying. Pray for one another with fervency. I already told you that, that James lists the word prayer, noun as a verb, three different words for prayer. Seven times in six verses, he is fervent about communicating the need for fervency. The elders praying over the one who calls them. Even the scene is, is a picture of fervency. You've got a plurality of elders, never just one, a plurality of elders. You've got the sick person. You've got the oil that is an aid to faith. You've got these multiple men praying over this person. You can just, if you stop and close your eyes and picture it, you can, you can hear the fervency. And then James universalizes that to say pray for 
one another. And then the prayer of the righteous person. We've already covered that. But what gives us boldness and confidence before God is that we are righteous, that we belong in the throne room of God because of what Jesus has done. Do you hear me? You belong there. You don't need to feel sheepish in the presence of God. By the work of Christ, you belong there. You can be bold. You can be confident. And boldness in our righteousness by faith leads to fervency in prayer. A doctoral student at Princeton was visiting a class where there was a guest lecturer. There was a time for questions, and the the doctoral student raised his hands. He was frustrated. He, He said, is there any original research to be done on any topic? It seems like we've become so microscopic on doctoral dissertation research, there's nothing left to do research on. And the visiting professor replied with these words, find out about prayer. Somebody has got to find out about prayer. The year was 1952. The guest lecturer was Albert Einstein, perhaps the greatest mind other than Jesus that ever graced planet Earth. Find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. You know who found out about prayer? Our Savior. Jesus was known as a man of prayer. Jesus understood prayer because he understood the Father. Luther understood the Father, not as well as Jesus, but Luther said this, Listen to this now, because this is key. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of His willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of His willingness. This table presents before us the willingness of God. God wants us to know with our senses. He wants us to see it. He wants us to smell it. He wants us to hear it. He wants us to taste it. God wants us to lay hold of his willingness to forgive, to transform, to welcome, to invite, to hear. And this table like the oil that the elders are to use to anoint, this table is an even more powerful biblical indicator of the Father's willingness. Let's pray. God, thank you for this table. Uh, Thank you for the, the bread and the fruit of the vine. Lord, we do understand that the substance of this, these elements don't change. They remain bread and the fruit of the vine, but you promise that you will use these elements in a supernatural way as we come in faith and repentance to transform our lives. 
you'll answer the prayer that we'll become more like Jesus. And we can pray this for one another. God, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.